Today, we continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by many of the great thinkers, organizers, and revolutionaries of modern history. Today, we'll discuss what Marxism has to say about the environment. Why and how is capitalism destroying the planet? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week. Thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate everyone's support and encourage you, if you're not yet, to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Thank you. We're very, very happy you can join us once again. A few weeks ago, we started doing this part of our show where we're talking about the basics in Marxism. And it's important not only so that people understand the core ideas of Marxism, but also to clear up some of the misrepresentations or false interpretations of Marxism. And and one of them, of course, is that Marxism, because it tries to look at history and the evolution of human society, partly through the lens of the development of the productive forces and how those productive forces come into conflict with pre-existing or earlier social systems with their own laws and regulations and rules, and how eventually the productive forces grow beyond the existing social system, collide with it, and the old social system becomes a fetter or a hindrance or an obstruction to forward progress, then that creates the material basis in the broad historical sense for a revolutionary transformation. So there's a preoccupation we are told, in Marxism with the development of the productive forces as if all that matters is the development of the productive forces and that it has sort of an underlying optimistic view that the development of the productive forces leads eventually to socialism. And thus, the development of productive forces takes primacy over all else. And of course, that comes directly into you know, conflict with those who care about the environment, who think unchecked economic growth and development, in fact, is destroying the planet. So there's this 
narrative that Marx and Engels really weren't involved in the issues of the environment or thinking about it much. And in fact, just the opposite is true. I wonder, as we get started here, Professor Wolf, read a little bit from an unfinished essay by Engels in an 1883 work called Dialectics of Nature. This was a chapter, it's chapter nine, the part played by labor in the transition from ape to man. Now, that's a very interesting little, it's been reproduced as a small pamphlet. It's very short. It's also very interesting. It's also, as I mentioned, unfinished. But here's a quote from it. Quote, let us not, however, flatter ourselves overmuch on account of our human conquest over nature. For each such conquest takes its revenge on us. Each of them, it is true, has in the first place the consequences on which we counted. But in the second and third places, it has quite different unforeseen effects, which only too often cancel out the first. The people who in Mesopotamia, Greece, Asia Minor, and elsewhere destroyed the forests to obtain cultivatable land never dreamed that they were laying the basis for the present devastated condition of these countries by removing along with the forests, the collecting centers and reservoirs of moisture. Engels and Marx, if you read carefully or thoroughly, comprehensively their works, there's so many comments and observations about just these kind of issues. Professor Wolf, again, in recent years, there's been more that's being written from a Marxist point of view about the environment, connecting Marx and Engels to the environmental movement. But I want to get your thoughts on this. Yes, I think that you're quite right to bring up that Marx and Engels, whatever else you may think about them, were not superficial thinkers. The notion that uh, human interactions with nature are complicated and contradictory is central to everything that they learn from their teacher Hegel or that they try to embody in their own work. Portraying these folks as being unaware that the human interaction with nature had a very mixed set of outcomes is not only insulting, it, it shows that you don't understand basically what the philosophical theoretical framework is for what Marx and Engels were trying to do. To say the same thing in more modern language, the idea of the Marxist is to show not that there isn't damage to the environment. Of course, there is terrible destruction, like the one that you just read us in that quotation. But their focus is to explain that the system called capitalism has a specific, particular responsibility for that economic behavior that has horrible natural consequences on our environment. It is not the only cause of problems. That would be silly. But it is a cause that others shy away from. And I'll give you an example from our United States today. There's an overwhelming priority given to the problems of the environment that are somehow caused by the consumer. And we are told, gee, you should throw away the papers differently from the way you do. You should get together with others and share the water or share the gasoline or you know, put your garbage in separate containers so that it can be recycled. In other words, 
these are not just nice suggestions for a better relationship to nature. If that's all they were, then I wouldn't be talking about them. But they are also very profoundly ways of changing people's focus, making the problem of the degradation of the environment something about individuals, masses of people making ill-informed or mistaken choices in how they consume or how they buy things or how they travel, etc., and thereby avoiding putting the finger of blame on the economic system. And that's very good for the capitalists that they can be out there, as many of them are these days, paying for glitzy ads in the newspaper, talking about their commitment to environmentalism. And indeed, not a few of these CEOs, I've talked with them myself, they do have a genuine concern for the climate. But that genuine concern goes together with a carefully cultivated ignorance or lack of consciousness or I can be less polite, but I'll keep it polite, an unwillingness to face that the business therein, making money, profiting from whatever it is they produce, is a key factor in environmental degradation. And I can explain Marx's view on this really quite simply. Marx, particularly in the first volume of Capital, the one where he lays this stuff out, explains what others, by the way, have also understood, he wasn't the only one, that each individual capitalist is forever driven by a tremendous anxiety built into the system. It's not an anxiety that the capitalists are born with or that they need for their personalities. It's a accommodation people make to an environmental requirement. What do I mean? Well, if you're a capitalist, you're always worried that another capitalist trying to make money just like you are will come up with some way to produce whatever you produce either more cheaply or with a higher quality or if they're really good at it, both. And that you will therefore go out of business because your customers will shift over to that other capitalist because he or she has been more efficient in the very limited sense of the term by getting either a cheaper output or a better quality one. And now here comes the environmentalism. Competition doesn't care how your competitor did it. If the way your competitor did it was to cut down a virgin forest somewhere, decimating the countryside, making it no longer have enough water, to use again the example that Engels, you quoted Engels to make, the loss of water in the Middle East and so on. They don't care because if they don't win the competition, their fear is one of their competitors will. So you can't afford, here's the punchline, in capitalism, no capitalist can afford to indulge his or her sympathy for the environment. They have to tear up the environment, grab the cheaper input, grab it wherever you can find it. If one country is offering you uh, coal or iron or oil or gas cheaper than another, you don't care what damage they did to get it. You've got to get the cheapest 
because if you don't, your competitor will. And having paid less than you did for whatever input we're discussing, they will be able to shave something off their price and then the customer will go to them and not to you. So each capitalist is forced by this system, driven as it is by profit, driven as it is by the competition over the profit, they all end up despoiling the environment. And the only way you could possibly stop that is if the government stepped in and forbade all kinds of activities, and it would be constantly increasing the list of the forbiddens because the competition blocked from one area would simply go to some other area. If they can't buy cheaper oil from somebody who's despoiling the planet that way, they'll go get cheaper iron or cheaper food products for their workers or whatever else and do the same kind of damage. So the only way to stop it would be massive government entrance and creating rules governing everything. But that is not acceptable to capitalists because of their fundamental fear. In a society where the vast majority of people are employees, not capitalists, remember the employer class, the capitalists, are a small minority of the population. In every society where there's anything like universal suffrage, where most people, employees, being the majority can vote, if you have a strong government, there's always the risk that the majority will use the strong government to do away with capitalism, to reshape the system so it serves the majority, the employees, and not the minority, the employers. So they can't allow the government even if they agreed with the idea of it, they blanch at the very thought of it for fear of what a powerful government might do. And so in the end, what you get is what we have now. When there's a big mass movement about climate change and global warming and things like that, you get lip service. The politicians do the lip service, the corporate CEOs do the lip service, but the reality of the capitalist system in which they live and from which they draw their wealth and their power doesn't permit them to do anything other than a few cosmetic adjustments, hyping the exposure in the media to whatever little things they do. Meanwhile, in their daily business, they're out there despoiling the environment. You know, the best parallel I can give is religion. Are the CEOs of this world committed to whatever religions they're members of? I think many of them are. And when they go on Sunday or Saturday or whatever day they do their religious activity, they pray and they promise to be better people and they mean it. But the problem is from Monday to Friday until they go the next time to the religious institution, the realities of what their lives are require them to lie, to cheat, to do all the things that their religions tell them not to do, and that on the day of religious observance, they promise whoever they pray to, they will not do. They're caught in a dilemma so that what going to church becomes is not really affirming a way of life. 
but consoling yourself for the failure to be able to follow these nice ideas because the system you're working in does not allow it. Richard, according to Engels, and this is the point that you are making so well and so importantly, individual capitalists are engaged in production and exchange purely for the sake of immediate profit, emphasis immediate profit. Only the nearest, most immediate results must first be taken into account. This is Engels. As long as the individual manufacturer or merchant sells a manufactured or purchased commodity with the usual coveted profit, he is satisfied and does not concern himself with what afterwards becomes of the commodity and its purchases. The same thing, Engels says, applies to the natural effects for the same actions. What care the Spanish planters in Cuba who burned on the forest on the slopes of the mountains and obtained from the ashes sufficient fertilizer for one generation of very highly profitable coffee trees, what cared they that the heavy tropical rainfall afterwards washed away the unprotected upper stratum of the soil, leaving behind only bare rocks? And he concludes, in relation to nature as to society, the present mode of production, that would be capitalism, is predominantly concerned only about the immediate, the most tangible result, and then surprise is expressed that the most remote effects of actions directed to this end turn out to be quite different and mostly quite the opposite in character, close quote. Now, when you think about that thought, when you consider what Engels is saying here, you come to the conclusion, well, the capitalist only cares about the immediate profit. So they're not planning for what comes next. And yet, as you and I have talked about in this show, and I know you talk about it frequently on your website and elsewhere and your other lectures, modern day capitalism does a lot of planning. You know, Amazon is a planned economy. It's a planned economy that's much bigger by, you know, a thousand fold than the planned economy in North Korea, for instance. It's planned in the sense that every part of production is prepared. Every part of production is driven. The data, the big data collected gives the Amazon owners and managers all they need to know about how to deliver things. They even, because they have concentrated all of the data about us, like every time we click on an item, even if we don't buy it, they know how long we spent online looking at it so that they can offer us similar type products the next time we come to the website. I mean, they have really planned everything. But Engels is talking about they're not planning because they only care about immediate profit. But in this case, Amazon proves and other big companies prove that, in fact, they have planned a lot. They probably even have a five-year plan. But again, the consequences of what happens outside of the arena of profit for the company that's the thing that they don't care about. And as you're saying, actually can't care about it that much if it increases the cost of their production and thus allows their competitor to get an edge on them. Yeah, you know, they will tell you that themselves. We don't have to imagine that what we're saying right now in this program is contested. Some ideologues, some libertarians maybe will contest it. But Every CEO I've ever spoken to will quickly tell you 
I wish I could do a whole lot of things differently. I wish I could relate to the environment differently. I wish I could relate to the workers in my factory or in my office differently. But I can't. If I don't behave in such a way as to maximize my profits, then I will be outcompeted by the next fellow or the next woman capitalist who is not held back the way I am. If I allow my morality, my ethics, my decency as a human being to begin to enter my judgments, I won't be here in five years. So you can all be satisfied that I was a very moral person as a CEO, but I will be replaced by somebody who wasn't moral like me and who went out of his or her way to take advantage of things I was too morally committed to allow myself to do. So your advice that I behave in a different way always is going to fall on deaf ears, because if it doesn't, those ears won't be there in a few years, and they will be replaced by ears that are deaf to your moral entreaties. That's the history of capitalism. Nobody has the luxury of being morally or ethically committed. They say they are a soulful corporation. They say they take seriously their civic responsibility. Of course they do. And they pay advertisers to tell you that they're saying that, but they cannot do it because it is too risky for them. Absolutely, Amazon plans all major corporations, and they're the ones that dominate our economy. All major capitalist corporations do a great deal of planning. Being large requires it. But the planning, as they will tell you, is focused on its objective, its goal, its so-called bottom line. And that is profit. And not profit 20 years from now. They don't have that big a window. It's profit over the next two or three quarters of a year in most cases, maybe a couple of years out. But beyond that, they haven't the luxury to be concerned about it, which is why the Marxist view has to be and is logically focused on changing the system appealing to people to behave differently when the daily system that surrounds them demands something else, that is a losing proposition. And that's why we on the left have asked the capitalist system to treat working people better and better over the years. And, you know, they only do it if they can afford it. If they can't afford it, if their competition requires it, they take away whatever it is the working class uh, has achieved in the past. You know, we had a real minimum wage 30 years ago. Now we have a minimum wage, which in terms of what it can afford is way less. The capitalist system has taken back what we once had. You know, in the Great Depression, we had a federal jobs program. The government hired all the people that the private sector could not or would not. Here we are in a terrible economic disaster. We don't have any federal jobs programs. The government isn't hiring the way it did in the 1930s because what was then achieved by the working class has since been taken away. And I think what you have to understand there is all of those experiences 
logically lead to the Marxist conclusion that the problem is the system. And we are going down a waste of energy and time if we keep pleading for people to behave differently from the way the system organizes their survival to be dependent on playing by its rules. This is a situation that liberals and conservatives who, whether they understand it or not, have as their priority the support of capitalism, they don't want to face that. That's why they become complicit in appealing to people to separate their elements of their garbage and all those other proposals of people to behave as though there weren't a system that pushes them in the opposite direction. Richard, as we start to move towards our close, I also want to talk with you about Marx and Engels as people and what motivated them to pursue their studies, their political premise, and their life's long orientation. Some people think because Marx and Engels were so prolific, because they wrote such monumental works, in the case of Marx Capital, multiple volumes, volume one, of course, was completely finished upon his death, and Engels finished the other volumes based on Marx's notes, not a small task. People think, well, these guys were real intellectuals. And of course, they are premier intellectuals. But it's important to note that Marx was actually drawn into political activity and political struggle. And in fact, his newspaper, the one he was editing at age 23 or 24, was shut down by Prussian censors because he was interested in the struggle of what he called proletarian peasants who were gatherers of wood. In Germany, Marx at that time would have been about 18 years old, but he was writing a few years later that the Prussian authorities were prosecuting peasants because they were going out and picking up wood. In other words, wood that sort of was just from nature and belonged to nature, but was used by human beings in the case of the proletarian peasants to provide heat for themselves and their families. About half of the 207,000 total prosecutions in Prussia that in 1836, for instance, were for wood pilfering by these proletarian peasants. And Marx, in that book that we referred to the other day, a couple of weeks ago, the preface to a critique of political economy, the book he wrote in 1859, he says there in the preface that it was his attempt to address the expropriation of the customary forest rights of the poor that drove him to the systematic study of political economy. In other words, it wasn't like an abstraction for him. He cared about what was happening to those peasants. He cared about what was happening to them. He cared that the owners of property were taking control of nature itself and depriving them of that which they needed for food, or in the case of wood, food, and also that which they needed to heat their homes, however small they were for themselves and their families, especially in winter. Again, there's this profound humanity in both Marx and Engels that is sometimes overlooked because of their intellectual achievements. And if you have this kind of profound humanity and you're looking at what's happening in society, you can't simply look at productive processes. You can't simply look at the superstructure. You can't look at things in the abstract. You look at things from the point of view of people and you can't but notice environmental destruction because it's so impactful on human beings. Anyway, just in our closing, I want you, because you have both taught Marxism and studied Marx and Engels, just to talk about this feature of who they were. 
Absolutely. And there is a tension. There's no need to shy away from the notion that there's a certain tension in being uh, highly educated in the days when Marx went to the university and got his equivalent of what we would nowadays call PhD or doctorate in philosophy, only a tiny percentage of the German people that he grew up among went to the university. So I don't know, 3%, 4%, if that. So yes, he was highly educated. He was highly trained. Engels, who came from a different background, was also a university graduate. And so, yes, we're talking about people who grew up with lots of education, lots of lectures from professors, including some of the greatest, like the philosopher Hegel, in the world at that time, etc., etc., but they were very interesting in the sense that they were always also rebels. And that has always been true. There are people who, with lots of education, are able to do, as you just said, Brian, take a step back from the immediate situation, use some of the learning that they've been lucky enough to get, and ask the bigger questions. What is this all for? Is this the only way people can live? And let's remember, coming from Manchester, England, which is where Engels' family were businessmen and so on, they could see every day dramatic poverty, just like you can in most American cities right now. Massive poverty, a mile or less in almost any direction, and you can go very quickly from extraordinary wealth to extraordinary poverty. And they asked the natural human question. What is going on here? Why does that young man or woman who looks like me, or whether or not she does or he does, really doesn't matter, but another human being like me, wearing that kind of clothing, living in that kind of housing, or on the street, or obviously poor, or obviously sick, or obviously, you can fill in the blank. Those questions grabbed these individuals. That's why Marx launched as he was after his university education. So his first job was to be a professor in another German university, teaching the philosophy, which is the topic in which he wrote his dissertation and got his degree. He was captured by the absurdity, as it struck him, that the forest, which is nobody's particular property, the forest where people for thousands of years have gone either to collect vegetation or to hunt animals or to pick up wood or gather mushrooms or whatever else, which sustained families, their food, their shelter was now privatized. The mass of people were told you can't have what every religion taught God had put there. You can't have it anymore. And so the only way you're going to survive is if you go sell yourself to a capitalist, you become a worker and live by getting the money and then buying from the capitalists what you help to produce for the capitalists so that they become wealthy and you're forever on the edge of dissolution. This struck Marx as the issue to understand. How could you do this? How could the nice German people he grew up among have their police forces arrest 
and persecute and jail people whose crime was to do what their mother and their grandmother and their great-grandfather did in the forest to help the family stay warm in the winter and feed themselves when there was nobody else competing for what was going on in the forest. Well, he had to answer it. And it was this capitalist employer-employee relationship, the competition among the capitalists. That's what Marx figured out was making for a system that drove people to do such horrible, cruel things to one another. And yes, Marx and Engels and many of the Marxists who came after them were similarly motivated often grew up in perfectly comfortable circumstances, but weren't blind and weren't blocked intellectually and mentally from being honest about what they saw around them and wanting to understand it. And with understanding came the partisanship, hey, we can do better as a society than what we are doing here. And I'm going to be an advocate for the changes that can make us a better society. That's how I understand what Marx and Engels did as individuals. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolff.com. That's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolff joins us every Wednesday. Stay with us tomorrow when we do The Real Story here on The Socialist Program. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Mm -hmm.